Welcome to Disruptive CEO Nation, where your host, Alison K. Summers, is searching the globe to introduce you to cutting-edge thinkers and entrepreneurs whose stories will inspire you to innovate your own business life. Having worked with and coached CEOs and senior leaders from over 90 countries, Alison is taking her own experiences to help today's CEOs and professionals meet the ever-changing demands of the future of work. Now, here's your host, Alison K. Summers. Welcome to Disruptive CEO Nation. It is always a fantastic day for us when we get to talk to not only a company founder, but an incredible thought leader and somebody who is doing their best to change the workplace culture in the world. She is considered one of Inc.'s top 100 leadership speakers and has a wonderful list of things being listed as an enterprising woman of the year. Um, she's been on top 40 under 40 list. It's just a treat to have her. So without any other introductions, let's go straight to Dr. Tiffany Janet. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. So you are with TMI Consulting. So tell our listeners what it is that is the fantastic things that TMI Consulting is doing in the world today. TMI Consulting is the, the world's first benefit corporation with a diversity and equity focus. So we do mostly workplace culture. We do some civic engagement work locally, nationally, and internationally as well. But our goal is to create workplaces that work well for everybody. And since we've been in the, uh, in the field for a long, long time, I won't say how long, but the longest time ever, <laughs> we've actually developed uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, ROI accountability metrics. So we have accountability metrics for sustainable solutions, sustainable strategies for how to address your diversity, equity, and inclusion. So rather than remaining in the world of the nebulous, we can actually help our, our clients calibrate organizational culture, organizational inclusion, and really take charge of the day-to-day -day lived experience that we want our employees to have. And what was the motivation for founding this company when you first got started? I like to say that I'm doing what most people on planet Earth are doing, and that's exactly what their parents are doing. So my mother was a pioneer in the diversity space. She came up post-civil rights and was standing up offices of multicultural affairs in universities across the country. And as a teenager, I was, you know, traipsing along behind mama, watching her deploy assessments and do what she did as a, as a um, behavioral psychologist. And it was just in my blood. I came up in the family business and then I spun off and created my own version. And, and so I am, I just, I love, I, I encourage our listeners to go take a look at, at your website because I just, I said, um, I said, when I'm looking at your photo, it just makes me smile and you make me feel included just by the warmth that you have. Can we talk about some of the trends that you see today in companies, whether these are trends in large companies or um, you know, what our founder CEOs are seeing as they're building their, their teams. Are there trends that you're pleased to see in the workplace or trends that you think, when is this going to change? I mean, the biggest, the biggest uh, headline for organizations in my industry right now is that the 
you know, the, the lexicon of my trade is now part of the vernacular. Five years ago when I was telling people I was doing this work and had been doing it for a long time, people didn't know what I was talking about. And now we're talking about things like unconscious bias and, you know, the equitable treatment of people and where my pronouns happen to be they and them. I'm not offended by she and her. Um, but more and more we're seeing individuals, you know, show up in the world as they are and uh, with an expectation that they'll be treated with respect. And the, the, one of the trends that I'm seeing now that people are, are, are gaining and, and increasing their uh, vocabulary around these concepts um, is that back in the day, if, if somebody was gonna do organizational culture work or diversity work in particular, that imperative was gonna come down from the CEO or at least the director of HR, VP, et cetera. And now increasingly what we're seeing is a more grassroots origination of the work. So whether, you know, whether a, you know, a woman or a person of color or otherwise marginalized person leaves the organization, they have an exit interview and they say, you know what, I really liked my work and I liked my job, but this organization was trash and how they treated me and other people and I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I'm going somewhere where I'm treated with respect. That's actually one of the most gracious things that people can do is to tell you why they're leaving. I'm seeing more and more companies that take that to heart and actually take on this work. And then sometimes you actually have the good fortune of a, a, a small or large number of employees that will still be at the organization and say, we love our jobs, we love our work, we love the mission of this organization, but we've really got to do something about inclusion. And they're driving the imperative up the food chain. And that's been a remarkable shift. And, you know, I got to agree, and I, I do think it's about time, and, and I think I work internationally, and so I've come over the years to think about diversity and inclusion in, a, in a, a, I think, a completely different way sometimes than other people, um, and certainly this, this place that we all need to be, but it's the humans that aspect too, I think, because human relationships seem to be breaking down more and it's not only about like you talk about um corporations what kind of advice do you give to ceos who are building and company founders who are building teams with a lot of freelancers and a lot of remote employees do you see a, a difference in how you approach companies that are are or advice as they're building their teams of people who aren't necessarily under the same roof or meeting face to face the, the core motivation is the thing that, that, that has to be centered, right? So whether you're building it, obviously if you're building a team that, you know, is bumping into each other physically, that is a much more intense and a very different kind of interaction uh, versus the, the virtual employees and the remote workers um, and bringing people across geographic expanses. But the core motivation, what is the day-to-day -day lived experience that we want people to have? How do we want people to feel? We're not accustomed to asking those questions. As organizational leaders and founders, we have a tendency to hire people for their technical competencies and promote them for the same. What we are, have been failing to do over the longer term is privileging behaviors that create a sense of inclusion, that create a sense of belonging, um, privileging things like emotional intelligence. And I hate that people call them soft skills. I call them interpersonal competencies. So privileging the interpersonal competencies that build community. So whether you are hiring people to work within office structures, bricks and mortar, or you are pulling together people remotely, there, is, there are still interpersonal competencies that favor healthy interactions between people and looking for those when you are recruiting people is really strong and also 
you know, that we, we want people to be making diverse and inclusive hires. We want people to be um, casting those nets widely and creating a, 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 a culture that appeals across broad demographics. So there are a lot of the advice is very similar, um, but the, you know, sort of the execution and how you engage in creating that camaraderie uh, shifts a little bit when you're talking about virtual employment. So Tiffany, on your website, one of the things that TMI does is these cultural assessments. And are all cultural assessments created equal? Because I really feel like, as you said, when you started in this space, um, and you're still such an, an impressive thought leader in this space, but when you started in this space, there probably weren't a lot of people doing things quite the way that, that you're doing them. And there's so many people out there um, talking about workplace engagement and cultural assessments. And what would be your caution for, for them in, in trying to make the right decision on, on what to do? Because I, I've been in business a little bit. We're not going to date ourselves, like you said. Um, and I've done a lot of these these different kind of approaches. But But what do you think makes a really good ben benchline and approach to doing these cultural assessments? Well, I mean, I'm going to have to be shamelessly promotional because I intentionally broke my industry with what I've built and with what I'm continuing to build because we're constantly iterating on, 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 our, on our platform. So our platform is called Loom the Culture Map, and it is, it is divergent from everything else in the market, first of all, because we're not just, you know, kind of telling you where you are and handing you a report and saying, you know, well, you can, here's your, here's your, here's your data, enjoy that, or even here's your data, let us help you fix it. We actually create an accountability loop. Um, we have a longitudinally field tested process with, with, with methodology that's been tested and proven. We can move organizational culture from, through a DEI lens from the, the, you know, the originating state to the desired state. We can help people actually calibrate that desired state in an inclusive manner where people get an opportunity to weigh in. And then we can create accountability benchmarks that, that demonstrate the movement, the shift, and, and that continue to do that over time. So the caution is don't just throw assessments at people and then shelve them and hope that everything works out. You have to continually measure where you are. So what sets our assessment apart is that we create a feedback loop whereby, you know, my, my, my thesis is that as a CEO, I have a very strong sense of, you know, my marketing plan for the next 24 months, my technology plan for the next 36 months, you know, my financial plans for as far out as I can project. But we don't have a tendency to intentionally calibrate our organizational cultures. What Loom, the culture map, and Loom Technologies, our division that, that leads the, the assessment portion, what we actually help you do is clearly define aspects of culture, um, measure those aspects of culture, including the inter interpersonal competencies that are required to sustain them, identify actual um, actual engagement gaps and, uh, and equity gaps, human equity gaps, and systems gaps, and then, and then very sort of granularly target where you allocate resources in service of um, improving the opportunities and without even using a deficit focus. My model has been, um, we, we, we call it a 100% aspirational approach. So no blame and shame. We're not deficit focused. We're not trying to find what's wrong and just fix it. No, we're actually also looking at 
what is going well in the context of your culture? The last thing you want to do is introduce a bunch of new stuff that doesn't work in the context of your culture. So if we are able to calibrate culture and see that you've got a couple of divisions that are absolutely outstanding at creating a sense of belonging, you know, at, at, at having, you know, equitable outcomes, then we actually want to capture that and proliferate it across the, across the environment. And with the, you know, the specificity of our assessment, we're able to target things down to the department, down to the leader, down to where things are great and also where things need support. Well, thank you really for sharing that. I, there were a couple tidbits in there that I'm going to go back and listen to what you said on the replay um, because they really resonated with me. And I want to talk about the books because not only are you a force to be reckoned with as a, as a CEO, and, but you're also an author and you have these books and, and is, again, you go out and you speak and you share this message with everybody. But you have a book coming up called Subtle Acts of Exclusion. And I just, I shudder because it says on the cover, how to understand, identify, and stop microaggressions. And I think it's the microaggressions that start to kill all of us. And some of it is unconscious. But can you tell us a little bit about, um, about this book and about what's why we might want to take a look to pick it up when it comes out? Absolutely. So uh, I wrote the book because there, were, there was not a book on microaggressions and certainly not one that, you know, that, that, that helped people in the, the manner that I like to write my books is really a, a, an individual can pick it up um, what, regardless of where they are in their organization or in their life path and can go along an independent study journey. Um, and then if you're a leader or a facilitator or a trainer or CEO, it doesn't matter. We have written this book from a perspective that includes what you need to know from your vantage point. So that's one thing. Um, but the big, the big headline for us is that uh, my co-author, Michael Barron, and I uh, wanted to rebrand the term microaggressions itself because like calling someone a racist, as soon as someone declares microaggression, everyone in the room goes on the defensive. There's just no coming back because we've dropped into our, you know, our animal brain and we are <laughs> fight or flight. It's just not a good scene. And so we wanted to rebrand it as subtle acts of exclusion because I think that uh, we also call them SAE for short. So SAE, subtle acts of exclusion, are to microaggressions what like unconscious bias is to, you know, prejudice or racism, right? Unconscious bias gave us, uh, gave us language that made doing the work accessible because it took us off the hook for our intentionality. And subtle acts of exclusion linguistically kind of does something similar. It says, look, these things, are, they, these things are, are inherently kind of small and seemingly ins insignificant, but they are exclusive by nature. They are pushing people out to the margins. And so what we offer is clear definitions and examples of what these are broken down into, you know, the, you know, the usual suspect categories and then some additional ones. Um, and then we actually provide for the organizational folks, for the folks who are running companies and existing within those kinds of systems. And that's the expertise that I've been living into for many, many, many years. Um, what we actually create is a, an SAE accountability system. So how do you respond when someone has um, you know, assaulted you with uh, with a subtle act of exclusion. How do you respond if your witness 
to something like that, you know, to someone being shut down in a meeting because of their gender or whatever? Um, and then how do you respond as an organization if you want to create a learning, growing, and inclusive organization where the expectation is that when these little offenses happen, that we have the tools and the mechanisms to speak up and still retain relationship and still build community? And again, I, I, I encourage the listeners to just go take a look, just go take a look at all of this information, because I think it's, it's a wealth of knowledge. And unless you've traditionally in your career come up through human resources, or unless you've had really fantastic mentors in your career, you might have things going on in your business life that you don't even acknowledge or recognize that, that you need to course correct. And, you know, me included. The one thing I love about doing these interviews is there was make me go look in the mirror after I get off the phone. Um, I wanna to talk to you about the value of a company founder or a CEO of authoring books. Was that something that was part of your business strategy in the past or was it organic that you were like, I need to write a book on this topic? Oh no, it was completely organic. I, you know, I emerged as a speaker. I mean, I've been speaking since I was in, you know, high school, middle school. Um, I have words. I love to communicate, right? <laughs> and so as, as I became, um, as I was asked increasingly to stand on stage and share my experiences, I found that post-sharing, um, that people wanted so much more from me than I could than I could offer as one person. And so I literally just wrote the book so that I would have something to leave behind so that my methodology and, you know, the, the, the divine gift of what, you know, what God has given me in terms of perspective and experience and, and way of ways of, of experiencing the world and looking at things is something that I could share out to a much broader audience. So I was never, never thought to be an author um, and, you know, and it certainly wasn't in it for the money. And I was told from day one by my publisher, if you're in it for the money, do something else. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> no, it's books... a remarkable tool. <laughs> no. yeah. Books are not the, the, the ticket to, um, uh, how do we want to say it, to a millionaire lifestyle. But they absolutely are a wonderful thing to show brand authority and to share your message and to give back. I, I see them as as a wonderful way of, of giving back. So before we close I, and out, I would, I, I have to say, like full disclosure, this morning I looked at my quarterly statement, and you know, while that was never the goal, when you write bestsellers, it does make a difference. I, <laughs> I think I went backwards, and my my the, the the combined royalties from the four books are more than I was making annually ten years ago. So, <laughs> so well, thank you, you to all of my readers. Yeah, that's, <laughs> no, that's great. Well, it's not insignificant. So see, listeners, I'm not, I'm not, you know, just making it up when I say you need to go check it out. And then I know I'm gonna, I'm gonna click on one of these books before I get off, um, off the phone myself with Tiffany. I, I want to go back, and before we close out and talk again about your journey as, as a business builder and a company founder, and I, I like to to ask my guests, you know, was there a naked lesson? What was the, the if we had to strip down and go, oh, I'm not so proud of that moment, or I wish I had known better, or I wasted way too much money on my path. Was there something that you would say that would be a, a pearl of wisdom for everybody in your business building journey? In my business building journey, whew. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, 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 the most challenging things 
that I have been through. Um, I have two in particular that were the absolute gnarliest, but um, the theme for, for a couple of them have been um, around the people that you choose. You know, this is why the, the work that I'm, that I'm doing in uh, organizational culture work is really so important because again, if you're only hiring for technical competency, then you are potentially missing out on a lot of opportunity and you're actually putting yourself at, at, at peril. You're putting the organization at great risk um, because if people are, are not, if you're not, you know, both hiring people who are coming with a template that is one that is inclusive where they can create healthy systems around them or, or, at the very least, and what I think what we what we all should be doing is we should be leveraging our organizations as learning laboratories. They're the biggest learning labs we have outside of structured education. And so we should be helping equip people with the tools that they need um, to engage with each other in ways that are more healthy. So my, you know, cautionary tales would come around, you know, being really thoughtful about who you hire and what, what you privilege um, because there are certain things like values that you can't really, you know, you, they're much harder to teach than technical skills. You can teach the technical skills, but finding good people. Um, and, and I, you know, I got burned a couple of times around trust and verify. I'm a very trusting employer. I am a person who hires people who I think are um, amazing human beings who can do great things. And I'm not a micromanager. I never have been. And, you know, when you make, um, you know, when you make, choices that are not values aligned with who you are and what you what your organization stands for uh that can come back and bite you and so being able to screen for some of these things is uh you know that's kind of the next big frontier well thank you for sharing that and when you go to next frontier if we came back and talked to you in three or five years what's the vision what's the what's the story in the future for for you as a leadership expert and for tmi consulting <laughs> girl <laughs> you don't know what you're asking <laughs> i fancy myself a whole visionary i'm i'm uh I've, i keep staying ahead of my time but that's what's so fun about it um so you know right now i would say i am um I'm very much inspired by the uh, Afrofuturist movement. And if you're not familiar with Afrofuturism, I think the biggest example to come before the, uh, you know, the, the public sphere is, uh, is Black Panther. Uh -huh. And it's this idea, it's this idea that, you know, the people of African descent and the African diaspora kind of creates this speculative fiction style notion of, of what is possible in a world devoid of the delusion of white supremacy. And I always refer to it as the delusion of white supremacy because whiteness was never supreme, but we all fell for it. Um, so that is the next frontier. The next frontier is redefining and intentionally building systems devoid of identity hierarchies. Everything that we have um, going on in our institutions, in our systems, in our society was built with great and incredible and precise intention. And in order for us to course correct, and that's exactly what we have to do because our systems are screwed, um, in order to course correct, we're going to have to conceive of an entirely new way. And um, what, where I'm focusing my energy now, because like, you know, my fourth book comes out on March 10th, 2020. My fifth book is already written in my sixth one I just got approval for. So, <laughs> so what, what you'll be seeing in the years ahead will be um, really focusing. If I look at the sum total of the books that I've written, 
and the work that I've done and the research that I've proven, it's all moving towards this, you know, what is the ideal state? I help people calibrate the ideal state for their organizations based on where they are now, but it's always something that is reasonably within reach. We need to reach farther, we need to reach higher, and we can absolutely get there. And what I love about where we are in society and where we are in uh, with our, our global economy is that the very real and very visceral need for change, regardless of where anyone sits politically um, or ideolo ideologically, we all recognize that the imbalance is causing great harm across the system. And so creating and envisioning something new and then building systems that can calibrate towards that vision is exactly where I'm headed. Tiffany, that is, is just, it's so wonderful to hear you say that. Um, I, clearly, I've worked in a equity and inclusion space for a while, mainly around um, women. But at the end of the day, I am so much for people creating opportunities for themselves and having an economic health. So I am completely bought into everything that you just said. But I do, I'm going to ask you a question that somebody asked me this week. And I hate, I just, I hate because you're so well accomplished. And what do you do for fun? What do you do for relaxation away from this? And I hate that question because I like to do business things for fun. I like business conferences for fun. And people are like, you're crazy. But Tiffany, I do have to ask you, what do you do for enjoyment? Oh, that's so funny because I'm a, I'm a Gemini, if that means anything to you, the twins. So I've had corporate Tiffany and creative Tiffany have been duking it out for a long time. And decades ago, corporate Tiffany won and invested all this time into the corporate system. Um, but I'm a, I'm a visual and a performing artist. So I write poetry, mostly love poems every single day. I have a book of poetry will come out that will probably be one, two, three, the third, that's, that's three more books out. Um, I have just completed um, my first uh, screenplay. So I'm writing a multi-series television show. Um, one of the books that's coming out is actually a graphic novel. Um, I am an actor. <laughs> I'm a voice artist. So I've got a couple of voice agents. Um, and I'm completely and utterly obsessed with travel and self-care. So I, have, I only have Antarctica left. So that's my last continent. I'm looking forward to hitting that. Um, but I, I'm obsessed with self-care. Um, I have a YouTube show that is just kind of, it's called Life with Doc Jana, and it's just an inside look on this, you know, utterly ridiculous, uh, wonderful life that I live. I'm, I identify as an awareness artist and a pleasure activist. So liberation through joy is a philosophy that I live into. If it does not bring me joy, I do not do it. My hair is blue because it brings me joy. I notice that it also brings other people joy, but I am not going to live an, a moment of my life that is inauthentic or that it is not an expression of who I want to be and what I want reflected in the world. And so I am having fun all the time. Like you, the business stuff is fun. Like I enjoy building enterprise for its own sake. And the fact that social enterprise exists and that I can actually make the world a better place through my business ventures is amazing. <laughs> um, but I, but I, so I do enjoy that, but I also take um, a lot of time and a lot of care to take very, very good care of myself physically, spiritually, emotionally. Um, and then I have a, a multitude of creative outlets. I'm also a painter. I'm getting ready to hang a show like that, all the things. <laughs> well, it was a very loaded question that we asked you. Um, so Tiffany, tell everybody how they can, how they can track you down your website, um, any of your social media spaces. 
yeah. So if, I mean, if you, if you want to know me, the person I am, uh, definitely on, uh, I'm, I'm Tiffany Jana on most social media. Um, I'm, I'm active on Instagram. Like I said, the YouTube show, follow my show, follow my channel, subscribe. It's good stuff. Um, and only getting better. And then, um, I think the only one that I'm not Tiffany Jana is Twitter because I thought I was cute. So I'm Twiffany Jana with a W <laughs> on Twitter, but, uh, my you know my uh my wonderful team keeps my my linkedin and uh you know and the website and the blogs and everything um you know sort of populated and moving forward with the things that we're focusing on but the website is tmiconsultinginc.com uh inc and yeah we're very very much out there in the uh in the social sphere and would love to uh engage with folks and if you have questions about what we do um all of our platforms have messaging me mechanisms and we do respond to those well thank you again for being a guest and, and for really opening up um, about your business and your life and again to our listeners go take a look there's there's so much um, to be gained by understanding what TMI consulting does and um, what Tiffany puts out into the world so thank you again for being a guest uh, to my listeners, if you know of a fantastic disruptive CEO that we should be speaking to, send me an email at connect at allisonksummers.com. Until we speak again, keep your eye on the future. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>